Hi friends, I'm Tim Viegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, our podcast that brings you conversations about inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. An autistic mom of three autistic kids, Jen Melia is the author of the children's chapter book series, The Infinity Rainbow Club, and the picture book, Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism. She is professor of English and creative writing coordinator at Norfolk State University, and currently is pursuing a Master of Fine Arts in writing for children and young adults at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Originally from Pittsburgh, she currently lives with her husband and three kids in Virginia Beach, although I hear she doesn't miss a Steelers or Penguins game. For this episode, Jen Melia discusses her transition from academic writing to creative writing. She shares how her autism diagnosis influenced her writing and inspired her to create stories about neurodivergent characters. Jen also talks about the inspiration behind her Infinity Rainbow Club series and the importance of portraying neurodivergent kids in everyday situations. She emphasizes the need for acceptance and understanding of neurodivergence and hopes that her books will reach a wide audience, including educators and parents. This week, I'd like to highlight one of the sponsors for our narrative podcast series, Inclusion Stories, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. COPA is on a mission to protect and enforce the legal and civil rights of students with disabilities and their families. With over 3,100 members across all 50 states and territories, they're making a significant impact. They're community-led, and much of their work is driven by dedicated member volunteers. Too many students face unnecessary barriers to learning, but COPA is here to fight for them. They advocate for equitable, inclusive education for students of all abilities. They provide training, mentorship, and expert advice ensuring that families and advocates have the support they need. Visit copaa.org to learn more. We've got a great conversation for you today that will help all of us to think inclusive. Make sure to stick around for the mystery question. And for free time this week, I respond to a video of an educator that argues that inclusion is setting up kids for failure. Don't miss it. We'll be back after a quick break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Jen, Melia, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jen, I know that you're a professor of English, but have you always been a writer? Well, it's interesting because I started out, I got my PhD in English and mostly published like literary criticism. So I was more on the critical side, but I had an interest in creative writing. It just took me a while to sort of get around to publishing in that area. So I was always a writer some kind. It was just like the types of things that I published changed over time. Okay. So you did more, more academic writing before you went into children's books or middle grade books. Is that right? Yeah. And there was actually a step in between there where I did more journalism as well. So I started out with doing more academic work and it was actually my autism diagnosis that switched me over to writing personal essays, reported pieces, related to neurodivergence and autism. And then an opportunity to write a children's book came up because of that. And that's how that sort of launched into additional opportunities to publish books. What's the inspiration behind the new series? I know you, know, you wrote Too Sticky and this seems, you, you seem to be laying out more of some story arcs and particular ideas for these characters. So with... Actually, even with Too Sticky and the Infinity Rainbow Club series, I have always thought that there needs to be more books that aren't so much about autism, but about kids that just happen to be autistic, going about their everyday life. And so that was really the inspiration was more just let me put together stories that are about just people who happen to be neurodivergent that do the same sorts of things that anybody might do. So, you know, the kinds of um, story arcs, they're, they're just kids that have an after-school club who get together. And it's, that's the kind of thing you might see in other kinds of series of books that aren't specifically about neurodivergence. For me, it's more like there's characters that I have in mind, but the stories themselves aren't all that different in terms of the kinds of adventures that the kids go on. The characters in the Infinity Rainbow Club series, are they inspired by kids or people you know? Yeah, so they're like composite characters. So the first book, Nick, is also named after my son. And so it's very, it is very much inspired by him. And in fact, the whole family situation set up with the mom, the dad, the two sisters, it's very much inspired by my family of five. And I think that's just, it still has that composite character kind of thing. And I think that's true of any book that you write that's fiction, really, even if it's based on another character to use the freedom of fiction to explore other 
aspects in a story, I think, is just something that I really enjoy doing. Because I have written nonfiction personal essays where you stick exactly to the story. Mm -hmm. But I, I really like writing what I think of as like autobiographical fiction or even just fiction that's highly, you know, has elements of autobiography, if you will, because a lot of scenes that are in Nick and the Brick Builder Challenge, the first book in the series, a lot of those scenes are actually taken from interactions between my kids and their playroom, like with the plastic brick builders that they use. And that's that very much was inspired by the thousands and thousands of plastic bricks we have in our playroom. Um, so they have their own sort of brick builder cities that that fill our playroom. And so it very much came from those kind of family interactions. For Nick, is there a particular story in the book that was like, this is the essential issue or problem? Yeah. And it's so hard to pick because the way one way that um, I thought about the book was I wanted to show Nick interacting with family and then also interacting with classmates and teachers. So there's kind of like two different plot threads that go through there. And I would say um, some of the key interactions are like one scene that I really was actually really hard for me to write, but I thought was really important to the book is I, I showed how Nick's anger that he experiences at dinner time, and then he sort of storms off and goes up to his bedroom and hides in his closet, like his safe space. I showed that interaction that he has. It was very much based on a typical sort of situation that we've had where that's happened. He does have a safe space in his closet. And I, as the mom in the story, do and have gone to the closet and sort of knocked on it to check on him. And then so very much that interaction where the mom and story actually lays on the closet floor with with Nick, the character that has happened. And it's that bonding between the mother and child in those moments and waiting for the right time. So like a typical situation would be that he might not be ready for me to come in yet. And so it's like checking on him and then coming back and seeing if giving a blanket or a pillow or that kind of thing. And that's in the story, he gets it himself, but it's just like that safe space and eventually coming out of the closet to go finish dinner. But for me, that was really important because I don't think, despite wanting to show a positive, in every way, positive experiences that um, autistic kids have, I think it's also important to acknowledge the challenges and how there are certain ways that that they could be dealt with. And that I have found as a mother who is also autistic, the kinds of things that I need, I need space, but I also need someone to help me sometimes when I'm really having a moment. And that's how I've found with my kids that they need sometimes extra support in those areas. But learning where the line is, give the give someone space, but also you don't want um, them to hurt themselves in those moments where they might be having an autistic meltdown. You were diagnosed with autism later in life. So how has that changed your view of yourself and the world and also your children? Yeah, it's, I mean, it was life-changing in a good way for me because it was before the diagnosis, and I, I was diagnosed at 39. Um, before then, I always knew that there was something different about me, but I just didn't know what it was. And so I went through life always feeling my social interactions weren't quite right, or I always like, blamed myself more for the things that I thought were inadequate in the way that I dealt with situations, responded to 
got overstimulated at times, all these things that I didn't know. I didn't have a name for them. But once I got diagnosed, it made a lot of sense to me. It was like I could look back at every moment of my life, every sort of decade of my life where there were different challenges. And what's interesting that over the course of my life, the challenges have been very different with each decade of my life. But not knowing until I was 39, uh, there was quite a bit to look back on. Um, and I think it changed the way that I parent as well, because um, my daughter and I, we were my middle child. We were both diagnosed on the same day. And I wrote about that for the New York Times. That was a personal essay that had reported pieces, but it was very much about autistic mothers, autistic mothers of autistic children. Mm-hmm. And I think that changed my life, of course, like I said, in, for the better, but also being able to understand more about my kids. I feel that my autistic identity is very much a part of me, and I want them to feel that way too, that it's not a deficit, but just a difference, and that they hopefully will be proud of being autistic and not not feel that it's stigmatized in the way that, unfortunately, we see a lot. Yeah. Um. You said that you and your daughter were diagnosed on the same day. So the process of being diagnosed, at least for your daughter, did that also, did the, did it start for you at the same time as well for your daughter? Like, how did that play out? Yeah. So, um, I, I was the one that sought out the diagnosis for my daughter and I, so, and it was challenging at this point, the CDC recognizes that there's one in or one in 36 kids are now diagnosed with autism. That's what the research shows. And with and there's about four times as many boys than girls who are diagnosed as well. And so it's actually because there's so many differences to a lot of the diagnostic criteria makes it hard and challenging for girls and women to be diagnosed. Um, that's changing slowly over time. But I very much saw that in the in the way that I try to s- seek out this diagnosis. It was my own research, hundreds of hours of research to try to figure out what was going on with my daughter at the time who was having very severe autistic meltdowns. And I didn't know that's what that was, but I knew that there was definitely something going on that was more than just the language delay that she has. That's what everybody kept telling me. Oh, she has a language delay. And Mm. and yes, she did have a language delay, but it wasn't (laughs) just that. Um, so, you know, you go to the pediatrician, then you go to a developmental pediatrician. And I mean, even at that stage, I'm getting, you know, oh, like she's because she, she was making good eye contact. And she didn't meet the stereotypical traits that they were looking for to suggest the possibility of an autism diagnosis. But luckily, I'm still able to get referrals. And eventually I sought out a clinical psychologist who was more open to the different ways in which girls and women may have express their autism differently. So yeah, the autism diagnosis for an adult is quite different than what you would have with a child. It's more like investigating what things used to be like for you as a child and and how other other adults like your, you know, um might might be able to respond to some things about you as well. It's it's just it's complicated, I think, to get diagnosed as an adult. But for me it was important that, you know, I also knew that my daughter would be more likely to get her diagnosis if I were diagnosed because of the genetic component mm. of it. So for me, it wasn't just it, it was too it was too pronged for me. It was one I just needed to know. Like I just <laughs> wanted to confirm what I always knew, but I just wanted to know, you know, to, to have that confirmation. And the second one was because I knew that it would make it easier for my kids. 
to be diagnosed. My, my yeah. son got diagnosed the year after that. And then eventually my oldest got diagnosed as well. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the characters in the book and how you set up um, what school looked like for them. The listeners of, of this podcast are very interested in inclusion and inclusive education and what that kind of looks like for learners with disabilities. And I noticed that in the series, you set it up where the learners are in a classroom with two teachers. So a general education teacher and a special education teacher. And, and I'm wondering, was that an intentional choice as opposed to how a lot of schools um, are set up where they have particular autism units that are set up to support learners? So I guess my first question is, was it, was it intentional? And then what was your hope and how to frame the character's educational experience? Yeah, so it was definitely intentional and very much based on the experiences that my own kids are having. So what's interesting is that when once I did get my daughter diagnosed, my middle child, it took a while actually for me to realize that she, I mean, she needed an IEP, but it wasn't, it wasn't that I, like I had to seek that out for her because it was a little bit different in terms of being able to identify her needs. She's autistic and dyslexic and has dys. Um, dysgraphia as well. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the dyslexia and the dysgraphia and the reading and writing instruction that she needed special education for. But that whole process of getting her the IEP and then also the way that she's being instructed is a special education teacher doesn't pull her out of the room, but she's in the general ed classroom. And there might be a table where the special ed teacher is working with a couple of students so it's very inclusive in that way that her her instruction, she has a lot of different accommodations, read alouds for assessments. Um, she gets chunking so that her questions are broken up and she doesn't have too many of them at a time. She gets extra time on tests. So she has a lot of these accommodations. And then on top of that, because she in fourth grade, she was still working on the reading instruction for a second grade level. So there was that gap with with that as well. So she would be working with a special education teacher for about 100 minutes a week, I think it was, for reading and about 50 for writing. So all of that pullout time wasn't actually pulled out of the classroom. It was like pulled to a table. And so that's how I imagined the classroom and in these books as well, where the, the special education teacher would work with the students and pull them out for certain minutes, but they were also very much a part of that classroom. And the regular teacher and the special education teacher would often be, in a way, not necessarily team teaching at the same time, but they would there would be different, like the special ed students would also be learning from their regular teacher in the same subject areas, but might be pulled out aside to work on a certain number of minutes on particular activities and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, so the general and the special education teacher are really collaborating and working together uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to these are your kids and these are my kids type of thing. Yeah. Right. And my son has a 504, which is a, a little bit different. His 504 has more accommodations that are very different actually than my daughter's in a way, because he doesn't need the chunking and the extra time. 
But what he actually needs is he gets overstimulated in the classroom. He needs like flexible seating. He needs the teacher to be close to him. So he needs that adult just supervision in a way that's just encouraging him to stay on task. He, he has trouble with unstructured times. And there's a lot of time like that, whether it's at gym class or recess or even just when the teacher says, OK, we have some time. We're going to independently read and things like that. So. He just needs a little bit more of those accommodations that aren't necessarily special education, but that are that are put in place in a very legal document to give him the assistance that he needs in the classroom. Right. Right. So the the club that is in the book uh, is is that patterned after something or is that just something that like it would be great to have, you know, yeah. like in real life? I'm glad you asked that question because it really was the ideal, you know, I really wish every class or every school, I mean, had a sensory gym because I have, I've heard of them. I've seen them when I go on, you know, I was doing the research for the book. You can find schools that do have these sensory gyms, but they are so rare. And how what great would it be if kids, not just neurodivergent kids, but any kids that need they get overstimulated in the classroom or just or just need breaks, brain breaks as my my the school that my kids go to. They always call them brain breaks, whether they're whatever they're doing to just basically reset, like to have a space like that. How wonderful would that be? So th that part of it, the, the idea of having a sensory gym in an elementary school, that was uh, very much the ideal situation. And also the club, again, it was just an imaginary kind of, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were a club? where STEMs were accepted and where people could just meet other like-minded. We think of there's so many books like series that have clubs. Think about I grew up with babysitter club books and my kids love things like Cat Kid Comic Club and all those kinds of just the, the kind of club series I think are just really popular. And I just wanted there to be something like that for neurodivergent kids, especially. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I just want to keep putting it out into the universe that schools absolutely should have a, a sensory room or a, a safe space in, in every school. So, and I also want to encourage you too, because uh, I actually know of school districts that it, uh, in fact, I just visited one in Maryland that has a particular room. It's called Student Support Center in every school. Every school in their district has a student support center and it is open to everyone, not just students with learning difficulties, sensory needs or anything like that. Anytime any student needs a little extra, that room is available and it's staffed. It's staffed. It's not staffed by special education teachers. It's staffed by the counseling department. So how wonderful is that? Uh, if you could have every school in the country have a student support center to, you know, support the social, emotional and sensory needs of, of kids, right? It's just amazing. What do you really hope for this series and who is the perfect reader for this series? I'll answer the perfect reader first. I think neurodivergent kids are the, the target audience. However, I really hope that teachers and parents and other kids that aren't neurodivergent will also want to learn more about. There's one in five kids now, or at least one in five kids that are neurodivergent. So if you think about a classroom, a typical 25 student classroom, at least five of those kids are going to be neurodivergent. The idea that, you know, that 
being autistic or having ADHD or dyslexia, these things are so common that I think it's very important that everyone have a better understanding of not just understanding, but be accepting of other neurodivergent kids. And I, I think also that my goal with writing this series was, as I mentioned in the beginning, I didn't want it to be so much a book that's, that's about neurodivergence as a book about kids who just happen to be neurodivergent. And I think that is a big part of the acceptance component, that if you realize that kids that might be autistic or have ADHD also do the same things that other kids might do, participate in brick builder challenges, or the second book is about working on volunteering in a natural history museum and working on augmented reality dinosaur exhibits. These are all things that we may not think about when we're talking about autism or ADHD, but these are the same things kids, any kids would be interested in. And I think that finding that common ground and making sure that, that it goes beyond just being aware, but also accepting of neurodivergence. And for educators who may be stocking their classroom libraries, how do you want educators to to view this book as a resource, as just something fun to have in the classroom? Like it, anything that you want to share with educators? Yeah, I hope it'll be something that they would, as I mentioned already, that kids, I think a lot of kids in classrooms are neurodivergent. So having that resource for them specifically is important, but also other kids as well. And I tried to incorporate a lot of humor in the books. And I was actually a little surprised, but very happy when my publisher listed the different categories of my book. Humor was one of them. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Because I mean, I don't really think of myself as a, a humorous writer, but I love that there's enough humor in it that it was identified as one of the, one of the components <laughs> of the books. Because a lot of people don't really think about if you're writing a book, it can like I said before, these things I hope are fun for kids to read. It's not a book like, let me tell you about autism or let me tell you about ADHD. It's a book that just happens to have autistic kids and neurodivergent kids, and they're having lots of fun and participating in challenges. And I, that was really what I wanted to do too. It was a big goal of mine. Like my kids have a lot of fun and we do everything that any other family might do. We're all neurodivergent in my family all five of us, but we do the same things that other families do. And so I just want to show that and share that in the books. So how many books in the series are, have been planned? So there are three books that are under contract and I'm hoping there will be more. But at the moment, there's Nick and the Brook Builder Challenge is the first book that's coming out in September. Then in October, Violet and the Jurassic Land Exhibit. Right. And then yes. in the spring will be Connor and the Taekwondo Tournament. Fantastic. Best of luck with the Infinity Rainbow Club series. And I hope if you're an educator listening to this, make sure you're stocking with your libraries with this series. It's going to be a wonderful adventure for you and your students. Stay tuned for the mystery question right after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So every interview um i pick a random question it's like a mystery question uh and we both answer it is are you up for that sure. i don't know what it's gonna be it so far it hasn't been anything you know inappropriate or anything so let's see um oh here okay so what's the most annoying bill that you have to pay it's interesting my husband pays all the bills in our household <laughs> so as an autistic person honestly that's one of those weaknesses that I have, just keeping track of bills. He goes out of town, bills don't get paid. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's a hard one. But, you know, I don't know, because I don't even know the extent of all the bills. I mean, I think of all the immediate ones, right? But like well, the water bill. <laughs> yeah. So the, the only thing that comes to mind for us is we have um, in Georgia, like we, I'm originally from Southern California. And in Southern California, you did not really have to pay like a monthly exterminator bill. Um, and when we moved to Georgia, everyone was like, you have to get one. You, you, like there's so many bugs and the termites and you just you like you have to get a termite bond and like all this stuff. And I'm like, that it just doesn't seem right. Well, I think we, we lasted one month without an exterminator and we're like, nope, like you know, bugs are crawling in our house, you know, we got cockroaches and we have ants and we have mosquitoes. And, and then, um, we're very thankful that we got the termite bond because I think uh, I've lived here for about 15 years. And I think the first or second year we lived in this house, um, I was in the bathroom and there were termites, you know, boring under our hardwood floors. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so fortunately the company came and took care of it and it was all covered. But that is a very annoying bill to pay because it's a lot of money, but you have to have it. <laughs> so anyways. That's interesting because we have that too in Virginia. Like we, that was another, like we have a, um, a termite person come in quarterly and, you know, all of that. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Having the termite person come in, that was not something when I lived in Pennsylvania that we did. So, Right. Yeah. I guess it's the, uh, I guess, I, I guess Virginia considered the South. I don't know. Yeah. Especially because yeah. Virginia Beach is like as South as you can get, really. We're like near the border of North Carolina. Jen Melia, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That chime means it's free time. So normally I don't respond to these kind of things, but a listener reached out to me directly on Instagram and shared a video. Now I'm going to play the audio and then respond via my preferred medium of choice, this podcast. 
And after this episode is published, I'm going to reach out to the video creator directly. And I got to tell you, she's not exactly wrong here, but I think her conclusions are where we differ. Here's the clip. Educators, I want to dive into this idea of inclusion, not promoting diversity like we thought it was going to. Let's get into it. So when I was going to school to be a special ed teacher, a lot of the stuff we were hearing about, oh, it's really important for kids to be included. And like, I hear you, but here's what's actually happening. We are making children that do not do well in big groups being forced into classrooms that they are uncomfortable in and they are acting out here. One, their classmates are going to remember that. It's like establishing a core memory. And so this idea of diversity is not going to be, oh, wow, look, like we can coexist. It's They're going to remember that child in class that had special needs tore up the classroom. This is what it's teaching kids about kids with special needs. And I'm not saying all. I think about a five, six, seven-year-old where this just becomes normalized. And think about what that's doing as I get older. And when they start seeing people in the workplace, it would put a really bad taste in my mouth if that's what I was learning when I was a kid is like, oh, this is what they do. And then on the flip side, children that have emotional needs that are still very cognitively with it, like how do you come back from that? If I was in the workplace and I had a mental breakdown in front of everybody, and I would be mortified. So to think about a kid that has these episodes and, and you're putting them in a class that you know that they're gonna have an episode. Like, don't you think those kids didn't forget that? Like, they're going to remember that. Remember when fifth grade, when so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Remember, the kids are remembering all these things. And so we're setting up the kids that have the emotional needs up for failure because. Her video cut out at the end there. So I'm not sure what she was going to say after that. But here is where I think we agree. Usually when people talk about inclusion, what they are really meaning is inclusive placement. Students with disabilities are included or present in a general education classroom. And I think that is what the creator of the video means here. But then she goes on to say, here is what's actually happening. Kids are being forced into classrooms where they are uncomfortable. And yet, I totally agree. As an educator who wants to see all learners authentically included, I don't want to force learners into a space where they are not welcomed, feel like they belong, or plan for. But, you see, that's just the thing. We can't expect for learners with sensory, communication, or emotional behavior support needs to simply be present in a general education classroom with no thought of how we are making them feel welcomed or planned for. And call that inclusion. It's not inclusion. Inclusive education means that every learner is a general education student, is welcomed, feels like they belong, and is planned for. And if they need something more or specifically designed for them, that is their special education. Fortunately, more and more schools are realizing this and moving toward inclusive practices, though it is still hard for many, many learners to find school systems where they are authentically included. But it doesn't mean that inclusion isn't something we should strive for. And when we see a learner who is struggling, not to say that they don't belong, but how can we set up the environment to actually support them? Thanks to the listener who tagged me and for the creator of this video. I'd love to have a conversation about this 
and any other issue related to inclusive practices. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how you can partner with MCIE on school transformation or professional learning opportunities, visit MCIE.org. Thanks again to the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates for being one of our amazing sponsors for Inclusion Stories. We could not have done this project without you. Love Think Inclusive? Here are a few ways to let us know. Rate us on Spotify or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Become a patron for extra stuff like these fine people. Thank you to Aaron P., Jarrett T., Joyner A., Kathy B., Mark C., Gabby M., Kathleen T., and Paula W. We appreciate your continued support of Think Inclusive. Think Inclusive is written, edited, designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Viegas. Original music by Miles Kredich. Additional music from Melody. Thank you for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. A show that my family and I love to watch is Lego Masters. Is, is that something that you is prominent in your family? Yes, definitely. And I would say that if you want to think of this book that I wrote is really a fictional version of like junior brick builder masters. <laughs> These kids are very much like participating in competitions like that. From MCIE. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.